You piece of trash. There we go. There we go. Come on. Pass pawn, baby. Check. Push. Yeah, you got nothing, buddy. You got nothing. Push. Queen. Thank you. And then I'm going to take your... And we have a draw. I was in a dead loss position, and I fought back uh, for a draw. How do you like that? How do you like them apples, Jeff Kaplow? Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I'm an associate professor of government here at William & Mary. And joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hey, Marcus, how are you today? Pretty good, Jeff. Uh, we're here in Williamsburg, January. It was actually kind of snowy or wintry mixy this morning. Uh, I know in D.C. they got some snow. We don't, we don't get a lot of snow in Williamsburg. So whenever it does um, come down, even if it doesn't stick, which was the case uh, today, you know, it's still kind of nice and, re and refreshing to see a little bit of snow. Hey, I wanted to mention I got an email from the maker of one of the audio editing tools I use to, to put together this podcast, pitching a new AI tool that's supposed to just fix audio for podcasts. So <laughs> I'm going to give that one a try, see what it can do with your audio. And so... It, I was going to say that AI has his work cut out for <laughs> no. it. So if the listeners notice like, wow, Marcus sounds much better this week. It's the magic of artificial intelligence, my friends. And if it's, he sounds exactly the same, then, you know, AI is not quite ready yet for this challenge. You know, AI, AI is pretty good. I, I watch some streamers uh, on YouTube who run on their treadmills and they, they, the problem with doing that, of course, is that you can hear like the steps on the treadmill and the pounding on it. And so that kind of disrupts everything but they have this, this ai software that i guess in real time is able to take out those stepping noises that's cool i mean that's that's remarkable i mean think about that it's it's able to like discern the sounds that you want from the sounds that you don't want and it does it like on the fly amazing well let, let's see if it can manage your voice and then we'll before we give it too much credit why well, this will be the this will be the true the true test so marcus i thought we could start today last time we spent a lot of time talking about the biggest risks for 2024. So I thought we could uh, take today and talk about um, the biggest bright spots for 2024. Cause last week was kind of a bummer, a little bit of a downer, a lot of, a lot of bad things happening in the world. So maybe we can go through your list of, of things in the world that are looking good for the, for the year ahead. So why don't you uh, get us started with that? Well, Jeff, I got to tell you, um, <laughs> I sat down earlier today um, and I tried to come up with such a list and I was hoping to have a top 10. And I got to say, all of the sort of areas where I, I started um, kind of thinking about uh, where there might be some bright spots, I, I quickly found kind of negatives. And so, like, I wanted to start with climate change and I was like, you know what, you know, climate change, there is there is cooperation that we did talk about on the podcast, you know, these uh, kind of summits and multilateral um, get-togethers and and you know the cops I mean, and all, and and I feel like that's an area where there has been some progress made and I think that there will be more significant uh, progress in the in the future. But then I think about like all of the sort of uh, natural kind of disasters that have occurred recently, um, the extreme weather patterns that we've been seeing, and and extreme weather was on my list last time as a as a negative, and it it made me sort of. You know, I hesitated to put this as a bright spot just because it seems like uh, while there might be sort of international collaboration uh, occurring, it's not happening at a pace at which it needs to in order to keep up with sort of the negatives of, of climate change. So I, I would say, I guess I would have a qualified bright spot on climate change only in the sense that states are talking, they're getting together, 
they are producing uh, agreements, but it just it seems like to me a little bit too little for the for the moment and, and not really up to the task uh, in front of us. So I guess it's a qualified. That one's really weak. Qualified bright spot. There's like nothing going on with climate change that that's going to make any kind of difference. So I don't yeah. I don't know where you're getting that one. That's, I, that's I'm a trying stretch. to be an optimistic. I'm trying to be an optimistic guy, but I I can't. You know. I mean, I. I I got the I also couldn't come up with anything really, but maybe that democracy is still a thing in places in a few mm-hmm. places for a little while longer. We had Guatemala, a little incident in Guatemala um, the last week where uh, there was a new president who was supposed to uh, be sworn in, and there was an attempt to block that swearing in, and ultimately he was sworn in. So you know that worked. Like uh, democracy worked. You got a new government in Guatemala that's reformists going to try to root out some of the some of the corruption problems in government that's great so you know and we had an election in in taiwan which i i called out as a a risk factor last week um worried that that would trigger china to be more aggressive but on the upside that you know democracy at work my friends so there's still some of that we have an election scheduled in america this year which is a bright spot because america also is still a democracy for a little while so uh, we have that to to hang on to yeah, uh, I mean, I gotta say, it's it's <laughs> the bright spot is there are still democracies. Um, that's, right. that's that's a tough one. Yeah. Uh, that's a tough one. I don't know. It's 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 tricky. I mean, it's it's. I mean, part of it is um, there's a tendency, I think, for especially in international relations. It, you know, international relations kind of gets born as a discipline, like looking at negative stuff. Sure. Right. It's like it's it it's sort of positive as a way to understand. You know, war, and I guess the you know the, the sort of more optimistic people will say, well, the corollary of war is peace, and so it also studies peace. But for whatever reason, like you know, it's security studies in particular has been about trying to figure out why we don't really study peace. We we kind of ignore peace and study war. I mean, I think that's the right. usual mechanism, which is kind of interesting. I mean, that we that would be interesting to have that discussion, like as to why. I mean, there is peace science. There, you know, there are right, but peace science is the study of conflict. That it's it's just a it's right. just marketing. Right. It's like the it's like the Department of Defense instead of the Department of War, you know? Right. And so it's – but it's interesting. Like it's, it's you know, you could – you could imagine international relations that started like by trying to understand why does peace keep breaking out? I mean war is certainly, as as you know, like fairly rare. Yeah. <laughs> right? You know? And so why why is it that the, there's so much peace? Well, maybe for our bright spots, we should be naming all the places that aren't at war because <laughs> that's good. That's good. Way to go, Belgium, for no civil war in Belgium this year. Canada, know? well done. Yeah. Right. So there's so and you know the United States and Canada did not fight a war this year. That's right. So that's good. Hey, so instead of the bright spots, I mean, do you, you can keep going on this line if you like. I mean, no, I mean, I, 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 people might have thought I was joking, but I literally don't have anything on my list. Yeah. Um, so I think we got to move on to something else. All right. So let's turn to uh, not a bright spot. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about Iran. We we talk about Iran, you know, a fair bit, um, but maybe it doesn't get the attention of a of a China or a Russia on the, on the list of bad actors. And maybe we should give it a little bit of t- attention because Iran is in the news the last week or so um, and the last few months for kind of a, a newfound aggressiveness in the region toward its neighbors. And I thought we could maybe break this down a little bit and look at some of the different angles here because I think that there's actually been a shift in Iran's behavior that is significant and, and I think I think matters when we think about the prospects for a broader peace in the Middle East and the risk of a wider conflict in the region. 
So just to give a little context here, what's happened in the last couple of weeks, so we've had, you know, escalation of Iranian-affiliated non-state actors like Hezbollah and um, some groups in Syria and uh, the Houthis in Yemen, that all of these groups are kind of taking a more active role in fighting against Israel and the U.S. and kind of uh, U.S. allies in the region. We can talk more about some of the stuff that's happened. We mentioned last time that the Houthis have been lobbing missiles at uh, shipping vessels in the Red Sea. And so the U.S. put together kind of a multinational coalition to defend those vessels. And I think we left off last time with me saying, yeah, the U.S. looks like it might have to fight back and fight against the Houthis here, but they're reluctant to do so because they don't want to cause a greater conflict in Yemen. And since that podcast aired, the U.S. has fired, I think, multiple volleys of missiles at Yemen, at Houthi installations in Yemen to try to take out their, their missiles. The first one of these was a multinational force. It wasn't just the United States. So other countries are kind of aligned um, with this initiative as well. So we have all these kind of Iranian-affiliated groups fighting against the U.S. and its allies in Israel. Um, Iran proper, uh, which suffered a, a pretty significant terrorist attack recently, credit for which was claimed by Islamic State actors. Uh, Iran fired missiles at three of its neighbors at what they said were anti-Iran groups within these countries. So um, Iraq, Pakistan, and Syria. It, it launched missiles at what it said was a spy base for Israel's intelligence agency in northern Iraq. Um, it launched a missile at anti-Iran terror groups in Syria and in Pakistan. And this is a, a kind of a new step uh, in, in Iranian aggression. And it has been, Iran has often used proxies to fight against these countries, although Pakistan is a new one on the enemies list, and we, we can talk about this. But this is kind of the first in a, in a while uh, Iranian strike um, against neighbors directly from Iran. And so, you know, there's been some news reporting on this, and I think it's worth looking at to, to, to ask, is this a new... Iranian strategy, is Iran decided to be more directly involved in some of these conflicts? And what are the implications of that for a broader conflict in the Middle East? Yeah. So a couple different things uh, jump out at me when I look at, at uh, some of the events of the past couple of weeks. First of all, I think it's useful to go back after October 7th to uh, some of the statements that Iran um, made shortly after uh, the terrorist incident, when I, I think a week later, they basically said, if the Palestinians, if there's aggression against the, the Palestinians in Gaza, we can expect regional escalation. Like I'm paraphrasing, but they basically said, look, this is about the Palestinians and we want to show Israel and the United States that you can't just, you know, march into Gaza and, and kill a bunch of civilians. We're not going to stand for it. You should expect regional escalation. So one way to interpret what's happened here is that since then, we know that, you know, Israel did go into Gaza and they're trying to take out Hamas leadership. And, you know, uh, we, we've discussed at length sort of the difficulties of doing that and the number of, of civilian casualties, which is, you know, terrible. One of the things that might be happening is, is Iran is trying to show uh, Israel and the United States like this is there are repercussions or there, there are um, consequences for for these actions. And we, we said that we were supporting the Palestinians. We were serious. Right. And so this is and we're, we're supporting Hamas and we're going to continue to have regional escalation as a way to try to deter you or change your behavior with regard to the Palestinians. So that's kind of one one way of, of thinking about this. And I guess there's some evidence for that, given that Iranian officials did did use those words and they said that we will 
uh, escalate regionally if we have to in order to show that, that we're serious. But the other way of interpreting this, and that, w- that would be sort of an approach that would suggest that Iran is, is aggressive, as you, you said, right? Part of me, though, looks at what's happening here is not so much uh, as Iran's aggression, but more sort of like a, a Iran's nervousness. Um, and when, it, what that means is sort of like trying to deter um, the United States and, uh, and Israel from being more engaged in, in the Middle East and against Iran's interests, right? So you can interpret – so, for example, when the, with backing the, the Houthis, right, and the, and the ships that are being targeted, trying to make you know, uh, trade through the Red Sea almost impossible, maybe try to make trade through uh, the Straits of Hormuz impossible. Like what they're trying to do is, is create – increase the costs for the United States, UK – um, for being engaged in helping Israel with what they're what they're trying to do, and just being engaged in in the region, and so I think what the where I'm sort of landing on this is that this is not so much about Iran sort of taking an aggressive step, although it clearly looks aggressive, but is more sort of signaling I think their um, insecurity and their their concern that they that their sort of deterrent that they've had you know previously has not been working, and they're getting nervous of of what they view as you know potential for uh, encroaching upon upon their not territory necessarily, but encroaching in the Middle East, and they're trying to say we're gonna we're gonna deter you from these actions. We're gonna try to prevent you from from you know engaging more. I don't think it's working. Um, I think all it's doing is is disrupting uh, U.S. trade and makes you know a wider uh, war look more likely. But I think there's that that's sort of my interpretation that Iran is actually feeling nervous uh, from a security perspective, and it's it's lashing out to try to increase its deterrent effect. Yeah, I see what you mean. Iran's strategy for years has been to try to insulate Iran proper from violence, from all the military threats around it, by virtue of these proxy organizations like Hezbollah, like the Houthis in Yemen, and like a whole bunch of other groups that are kind of active on the margins in Iraq and Syria. And the underlying strategic idea here is that if we keep the pressure on all of these enemies to Iran through these other groups, then those groups will also face the retaliation from Mm -hmm. our enemies. And we can kind of keep it all away from Iran proper. In the meantime, Iran has had a pretty rough political environment over the last few years with major protests against the government and crackdowns against Iranian citizens and this feeling that maybe the government wasn't as stable as it used to be. And then there was this big terrorist attack at the beginning of the year that injured and killed a lot of people. Um, Nearly 100 people were killed and wounded in in these attacks. The Iranian government kind of immediately blamed Israel and the United States, but the Islamic State took responsibility for this attack on civilians. And so the violence has come home in a way in Iran because of this attack. And just like Israel felt a kind of political imperative to respond aggressively against Hamas, just like the Israeli leadership felt that, I think the Iranian leadership feels the same, that it must show that it is doing something in the aftermath of this attack. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to call that an underlying insecurity, okay, but it could also be a change of strategy that the, the proxy organizations are no longer effective or as effective in drawing attention away from Iran. And so Iran needs to do more to signal its own strength directly, not abandoning those groups. In fact, increasing the pace of operation in those groups and increasing support to those groups. At the same time, we're going to lob missiles out of Iran 
at these countries to kind of show that we too can retaliate directly, that we are not deterred from doing that. So I, I, I think I, I agree with what you're saying, although maybe it's a, a matter of emphasis here uh, as to whether this is a strategic change or just an attempt to increase the deterrent threat that comes from Iranian forces. Right. I think we're both on the same page. This is ultimately about sort of deterrence and just a, a question of like how to best pull that off. Um, you know, it's it's striking, too, because I, I look at these various uh, incidents and they're they're kind of all over the place. Right. So you have, you know, you have Pakistan, you have the, the Houthis. Um, one of the things that that concerns me a lot is that and I'm, I'm not saying that this is completely analogous to to what I'm about to say, because it's not. But you think about like how World War One got started. Um, it was a very messy sort of configuration of alliances combined with states who felt, uh, or and, and maybe even some non-state actors, if you will, if we think about sort of like the, the different organizations that were involved, but, you know, sort of like insecure, entangled alliances, uh, a lack of diplomacy, uh, these rivalries that had been existing for a long time, and a lot of sort of small skirmishes um, and smaller events that culminated and got and got bigger in in a in a world war right and so i look at what's happening in in the middle east and it's like my goodness you have a lot of these same dynamics and you could say of course you know they, they, these a lot of these dynamics have been in place uh, for a very long time and have, world war 3 hasn't broken out yet and that's true but it just seems like there's something um particular to this this point in time where there is a war you know that that is occurring in gaza and outside of that war are these other sort of like proxy um, moments of violence uh, with very complicated, enduring rivalries and the actors and uh, great powers involved. And so the, I, I look at what Iran is doing and it, and it strikes me as, as being very dangerous. If the goal is to increase its deterrent effect, you know, one of the things that might actually be undermining that is the prospect that your this regional escalation is going to uh, produce something quite quite real in the sense of you know not a World War Three necessarily, but a lot more violence that will then be very much you know sort of on your on your doorstep. So I I just I see a lot of parallels at the moment, uh, and even a week ago I did not, although we were starting to see you know more more regional escalation. But the World War One kind of parallels to me are becoming a little bit scarily kind of like defined. I don't know. Do you, do you see any of this at all? Or am I, am I making too much of this? No, there's this weird sense of, well, this happened to me. Now I have to retaliate, you know, that, that, that yeah. we should talk about like that. And I think Pakistan is the interesting case here. Before we talk about Pakistan, I, I just want to highlight the Iranian PR around this recent spate of missile attacks. There was a, a press briefing after the Iranian strikes and the Iranian defense minister said, I'm quoting from New York Times article, quote, we are a missile power in the world. Wherever they want to threaten the Islamic Republic of Iran, we will react. And this reaction will definitely be proportionate, tough, and decisive. This is an interesting statement coming from the Iranian de defense minister. I, I like this phrase, well, like this phrase, but it's an interesting phrase. We are a missile power in the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you think about the great powers, the countries that can project power beyond their borders. You know, we're thinking of countries like the U.S., Russia, China, countries that have perhaps uh, large navies, that have lots of manpower, huge armies, right? But Iran is trying to say that we, too, are a power-projecting 
kind of a country, mm -hmm. that we have an advanced missile program that can threaten the whole region. And people have to take us seriously for that reason. And we will not hesitate to respond. And of course, it will be proportionate because, you know, who wouldn't want to respond proportionately? So I, I just thought it was kind of an interesting statement of Iran's view of itself or the view it wants to project to the, to the region of, the, uh, you know, we are a missile power. And it goes back to kind of the early, it reminds me of some of the early hand-wringing around missile proliferation back when that was something that people thought could be stopped. So, you know, in the 90s, I guess, when we started to see uh, ballistic missile technology spreading around the world, and there were all these takes about, you know, pre-Twitter. So the takes were, were not as hot as they are now. They were written down in, in journal articles. But there were all these takes about, well, what is this going to do to change the strategic balance in the world? What if Iran had a missile force that was capable of just striking its neighbors whenever it wants? You know, we would see a breakdown of peace in the Middle East and in the mm -hmm. wider region. And that didn't come to pass immediately. But this recent spate of attacks drives home the fact that this is a country that can do some damage, maybe not a lot of damage. I mean, these are not huge attacks. These are not the kinds of attacks that win a war. But Iran is capable of causing trouble for sure among its neighbors. There was one other angle on the missile attacks that I thought was kind of interesting that I saw some story about. Maybe I'll find a link for the, for the show notes. But there was one take on this that was like, well, you know what Iran is really doing here? It's not just deterrence. What it's doing is it's trying to demonstrate a capability because it's selling these missiles to Russia, <laughs> uh, maybe others. I like and, this political economy interpretation. Right, it's right. This is all, it's all yeah. about the money, Marcus. Right. And so, yeah. you know, what it's doing is it could have used crappy missiles for these attacks because they weren't very complicated attacks. But instead, it used like the good one, the new one to do these attacks. And so what does that mean? Does that mean it's really trying to send a message here? Who is the message to? Maybe the message is to potential buyers of this missile technology to say, hey, look, this thing really works. Unlike those North Korean missiles that you're hearing about in Ukraine that Russia is firing, these are the missiles that actually work. We're already selling all the drone technology to Russia. Maybe they should be buying more of our missiles. I thought this was an interesting <laughs> take that I, I, uh, I tend not to agree with, but I think I thought it was an interesting position. I do have a certain affinity for people who are able to make everything about kind of like dollars and cents in, right. in, in you know capitalism because um, I find that to be far fetched. But I also don't know why I see I, I find it to be far fetched. Right? It's it's plausible to me that if if part of Iran's economy is focused in you know missile production, they want to be able to sell these things, then showcasing them in the middle of uh, a Middle East regional escalation situation. And how effective they are could very well be profitable for them. I mean, I think this would be like number ten on their list of reasons to to do this. But I'm, I I, I like the creativity. And I like the way that people will you know sort of take an economic approach uh, to these things. I mean, and, and just to just to put a bow on on what you were talking about, the statements that Iran made, you know, we're a missile country, is again consistent with the the theory that we both have, which is that this is ultimately about trying to show. Whoever they think that they is the is the the one to be feared that they are they are powerful and they can project power right so they're doing it both you know with the missile strikes themselves but also doubling down with the words uh, that they're using. The tricky thing, of course, is that it's very difficult to be secure through the use of of missile strikes, right? And at the end of the New York Times article uh, that you were talking about, that we'll link to, there was a, an Iranian. Uh, 
who said security isn't provided by missiles. He was a disabled uh, veteran in the 1980s Iran-Iraq war. This regime's biggest mistake was that they forgot the people. They think they can stick around by relying on, on missiles. And I'm sympathetic to that, right? It's, it's like if you're, if you're sort of um, legitimacy and uh, long-term uh, survivability, if you view it in military terms, you think that it's about the missiles, but you've forgotten, uh, in this case, when he's talking about the people, you've forgotten sort of your domestic uh, uh, constituents and the fact that you have people in the country who are not going to be favorable uh, to the missile strikes, then you're you're missing a big part of of uh, the story, and you're missing a big you know sort of way that states are are secure both internally and externally. So I I, I there's a, there are a lot of aspects to this, and we can question sort of why they're doing it, but also this idea that the missile strikes themselves are going to lead to security. I think that this guy quoted in the story is is quite right. Yeah, the, the domestic political imperatives, it's like a common thread across all the countries in this region that none of them are secure politically, domestically secure politically. And so that is driving a lot of what we see. I think the only country that is maybe not driven primarily by domestic political concerns at the moment is the U.S., which is mm -hmm. kind of a funny because we, we talk about, you know, all the political partisanship and all the problems politically in the United States. But this is actually a case where the U.S. is kind of, you know, fine when it comes to public opinion and what we're doing. It's, it's, the, it's, it's Iran that's, that's facing kind of this internal domestic political pressure. It's, you know, the, the political situation in, in Yemen is a, completely, uh, a complete mess, right? Um, there's Pakistan. Maybe we should talk about Pakistan next. Pakistan has a crisis government. It doesn't even have a real government. It's like a caretaker government that is just hanging on until the, they can get a real government in there. And as a result, Pakistan really can't respond in the way it might otherwise. It, it, it's, it's, there's, a, there's kind of two factors here. One is it's unable to kind of muster the political will to do what it normally would do in a crisis situation. And at the same time is I think Pakistani leaders are very afraid of see, being seen as a government that can't function and thus weak in the international community. Like something has to be done. So Pakistan suffered this missile strike from, from Iran and it responded. And like, I think this was very clear that it was going to do this. Right. Um, and it responded with a missile strike of its own on what it said was a separatist group right. based in, based in Iran. Right. Of course, in all of these strikes, and we should mention children are being killed in all of these strikes, right? These are not like harmless blips on the, on the New York times. So it's not something we should gloss over. I mean, to do this just for, I, I don't think anyone thinks Pakistan like struck a blow for its, the security of its society with this strike. The strike was purely to show that it won't allow Iran to send a missile and not do anything. Right. And so because of that, some innocent civilians had to be killed. It, it's, it's a horrible situation, but it's very clear that the decision-making in Pakistan is driven by this idea that, well, we can't be seen as being weak. And I, I think, you know, this brings up a number of political science theories about how states function. And you're the kind of psychologist and uh, uh, the closest thing to a psychologist among the two of us. Mm -hmm. I mean, so there's a, there's a deterrent story you could tell here that Pakistan is worried about sending a deterrent signal to other states if you bomb me, we will respond. So don't attack me, right? That's kind of one way of looking at it. Yeah. But I, I don't really think that's a direct deterrence story. I would guess it's more like I'm worried about my reputation in the world. That I don't want to be seen. It's not like I'm worried about like an imminent attack from anybody else. I I'm just don't want to be seen as weak in the world. I don't want that reputation to be out there. So I'm going to do something 
so that my neighbor doesn't think I'm weak. And this is almost more of a individual level psychological argument than it is my usual state level deterrence thing that I would, that I would be talking about. <laughs> I mean, if, if we're thinking about like reputation uh, for, and you can have reputations for lots of different things, right? You can have a reputation for trustworthiness. You can have a reputation for, in this case, maybe it's resolve that we're, we're talking about or, or just sort of a reputation for um, response, right? The idea is, is sort of like, we are going to, we want it, We want people to know that if you essentially in layman's terms, if you mess with us, we're going to mess with you. We're not going to, we're not going to stand it. Right. So it's, it's, it's this odd sort of, of dynamic where a state feels compelled to respond because if they don't respond, even if they don't want to, by the way, right. If they think that responding might escalate, they know that they might be in the situation where this gets out of control. And before you know it, we're having a, you know, a, a, a skirmish on the border that turns into a, a, a war. They don't want that. Um, but they also don't want to be viewed as having a reputation as somebody that doesn't respond because that ultimately makes them weak. And then, you know, some point down the line, maybe maybe a, an actor will take advantage of that. So states from a psychological perspective have to worry about sort of the risks of es escalation and balance that against what reputational hit they're going to take uh, if they don't if they don't act. And I think this is why in this particular instance that these strikes were were relatively limited, right? It was sort of like, it was, it was sort of tit for tat in the way that we, we think about it, right? It's like, you know, Iran does this and Pakistan feels they have to respond, but didn't go overboard in their response. Didn't, didn't say, I mean, any attack obviously is, is terrible, especially when civilians are, are dying, but in the sort of uh, the, the, the menu of options that Pakistan has, this is going to be one of the ones that's relatively, you know, sort of uh, uh, small in the sense of we need to do something. We need to show that we're serious, but we don't want to escalate this uh, into something broader. And so, and they were very explicit about that, Marcus. I mean, after the attacks, yeah. Pakistan said the next step should be we talk. Right. You know, right. It, it was very much like, OK, we're trying not to we're trying not to push this further. We're going to launch another missile at you. But like everyone understands we had to do that because you launched the missile at us. But now let's get back to like not fighting each other and having a conversation diplomacy, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And it's, it's sort of like, it's this idea you want to, you want to convince the other side that your hands were tied. Like, well, we, we had to respond. Right. Well, what am I going to do? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which is of course ludicrous. They could have not, you know, yeah. <laughs> they didn't have to have the missile strike, but they want to, they want to convey that. And I think like most, you know, sort of reasonable people looking, if you know nothing about Iran or Pakistan, you might say that's reasonable. Like an eye for an eye, you hit me, I'm going to hit you back. Uh, and, and whether it's for psychological reasons or just a feeling of justice or whatever, you know, that was something that had to be done. I think a lot of people would, would, would say. And then to come out and be afterwards and say like, you know, and now we want to, we want this to end and we want diplomacy. The problem though, Jeff, and this is where I, you know, so I'm the psychologist in the room, but I'm also the sort of diplomatic studies person in the room. Who's going to, who's going to sort of mediate these, these conversations, right? So like the, the U.S. does not have a particularly good relationship with Pakistan. The United States does not have a particularly good relationship with Iran. Right. And I'm going to expand that further to the to the Houthi situation. Right. There are there are Houthi rebels shooting at ships in the Red Sea. That is is hugely problematic for all kinds of different reasons, not least of which the political economy reason the, the, the commerce uh, through the Suez Canal has like plummeted. And that needs to stop. But who is going to step up and be the sort of of diplomatic uh, voice here, the diplomatic actor? When the United States, the most sort of natural uh, state that you would think would, would provide that function, doesn't really – is not in a position to be able to negotiate, I don't think, between Iran and Pakistan or uh, the Houthis or, or whoever. So it's fine to say we want to start talking. I'm just a little bit worried that we don't have anybody that's, that's stepping up to the plate from a sort of great power perspective uh, in order to facilitate 
that dialogue. And then when you don't have that dialogue occurring, then, you know, you, you're in a situation where maybe the missile strikes, you know, down the road be, seem like a, a good option because we're not selling it diplomatically. We want to, we want to, you know, maybe go to the, to the military. So I'm concerned about uh, the prospects for a diplomatic resolution to this if the United States can't be involved. Yeah. So let's talk about the Yemen story here a little bit more. I, I agree with you. I mean, there's not like a, the, the role of the United States in this is, is getting murkier and murkier as we go. But here we have a Iranian-supported splinter group of the Yemen in, in Yemen, which controls a, a you know a fair portion of Yemen, um, launching missiles at basically shipping vessels in the Red Sea. The U.S. and allies said to stop. They did not stop. The uh, U.S. and allies fired one round of missile strikes, and then the U.S. I think alone fired a couple other rounds of strikes targeting Houthi missile installations in Yemen, to, you know, saying they were about to launch these. We had to do it. You know, we're trying to prevent additional attacks on civilian shipping. And in the meantime, like, as I mentioned last time, this is a country, Yemen, that has been racked by this absolutely horrific civil war over the last several years and has only recently reached the point where there is a stable ceasefire, and I don't know if stable is even the right word. There's a there's a ceasefire, and there, we're getting closer and closer to cementing that ceasefire in, a, in some kind of peace deal. And the big risk of bringing Yemen into this conflict is that it reignites the conflict in Yemen, which was horrible, like really horrible. So, you know, there, there's this the element of the United States basically saying, like, we have to do something. Right. Our hands are tied, just like Pakistan. Our hands are tied. We cannot allow this this group to be launching missiles at civilian shipping vessels in the Red Sea. All sorts of reasons for that. We have this multinational group um, with us to defend these these vessels. And we're on solid ground saying, no, we're going to fight back. And the idea being, you know, maybe this isn't enough to reignite the conflict in, in Yemen. Noticeably absent from the multinational group are friends in, in Saudi Arabia. And so let me ask you a question, Marcus. Saudi Arabia, worst ally this year or worst ally this decade? S Saudi Arabia, there, there is no end to the ways in which Saudi Arabia can suck as a U.S. ally, right? I mean, they're, they're just the worst. So like the, the one situation where – so Saudi Arabia funneling tons of money and U.S. arms into the conflict against this group in Yemen on the other side of this group fought this group for years and years in Yemen. And now when it comes time to protect some shipping vessels in the Red Sea, in the midst of this broader pick a side war in the Middle East, Saudi's like, no, nah, you know what? We're good. We're, we'll, be, we'll be friendly with this group now and refuses to get on board this coalition. And also it appears the U.S. has kind of pushed Saudi Arabia, which now has a dialogue with the Houthis because they're trying to uh, solidify the ceasefire has pushed Saudi Arabia to slow down the peace talks to bring the Houthis on board. And Saudi Arabia said, no, we're good. Mm -hmm. What the hell, man? What, what, what is going on over there? Uh, well, Jeff, that's, if I, if, <laughs> if I could answer that question, I would be on a plane to try to sort this out. I mean, I, I am confused uh, by lots of things uh, in this world, but this, this, sort of Houthi situation just also confuses me, right? Because part of what they've, I guess not even part of, but the, the, the argument that they've been making as to the why, like, why are you tacking these uh, uh, shipping vessels in the Red Sea? And, and 
they say it's because of the Palestinians, right? They're like, because this is because of, of uh, what's happening in Gaza and the war and, and all that. But I think most people like don't really buy that, right? Most people think that uh, historically, if you look at a lot of these actors in the Middle East, they use the Palestinians as sort of like right. their you know, crutch or whatever. Right. That's to do... the, the tragedy of all of this is that exactly. nobody cares about the Palestinians among all these countries. And, right. and it's all like an excuse to fight countries that they already have a beef with. And, and that's like the continuing tragedy of all of this is if somebody would actually do something to help the Palestinians, we'd be in a much better situation in the Middle East. Exactly. Exactly. So, so, so then the question is like, okay, well, why are they actually like, why do they really want to do this? Right. And it, I think the, the most obvious explanation is it gets back to what we were talking about uh, with Iran. Like this is an Iran, you know, sort of supported group that is trying to make life as difficult as possible uh, for the United States and, and other, and other actors. And just to give the listener, like, I think it, it's sometimes helpful to um, pull, pull like a map like out, like Brian Blue Eye in our department, uh, who retired recently, was great. He had maps of everything, and, and sometimes he would show me like maps in, on paper. Like you can go to Google Maps, but on paper you just look at a, a map and you try to understand sort of the geography and what you're dealing with, right? So you have like Asia on one side, and you have Europe and like the Atlantic Ocean on the other side, and standing in the middle is this big continent of Africa. Right. So if you're going to get anything from Asia to Europe or you're going to get anything from Asia to uh, you want to go across the Atlantic Ocean, you can go the other way, of course, the Pacific Ocean. But you need to get somehow through Africa in order to do it. And the Red Sea is how this happens, because there's the Suez Canal and you're able to go through the Red Sea up to the Suez Canal and get into the Mediterranean and go to Italy or France or wherever you want to want to go. When that gets blocked, either because the canal gets shut down and there's a crisis there, or because they're shooting missiles at shipping vessels, vessels in the Red Sea, the, the, the ability to go through the Suez Canal goes down because shipping vessels don't want to get blown up, people don't want to die, and so they stop using that. And that has two different uh, ramifications, one of which is the boats then have to go under the Horn of Africa and come back up to the Mediterranean, which takes forever and is incredibly costly, or they don't make the, the, the trip at all. And that has huge ramifications for, for global commerce. It also has huge ramifications for Egypt. Egypt gets something like, I, I was looking at this uh, earlier. What is the amount of money? $9.4 billion in the fiscal year of 2022, 2023, just from transit fees, just from using the Suez Canal. It's able to take this money and, and have it as part of its economy. Even before this was going on, people were looking at Egypt and their economy and saying, this is in really bad shape. We're nervous about Egypt's economy. If the economy goes down in, in Egypt, historically what happens is you have civil unrest. You might have revolution. That could be really bad. So you have the Houthis striking at these uh, ships, which is causing a lack of traffic through the Suez Canal, which is causing Egypt to not have uh, their economic profit from that canal, which in turn might cause Egypt to be unstable. This is, again, contributing, I think, to my overall feeling of, of sort of World War One kind of vibes, because all of these sort of disparate things that are occurring are having knock-on effects in other places that are that is affecting the whole region. So to get back to your question, what is going on here, Jeff? I actually don't know, other than the sort of like simplistic view that I think may be right, which is simply that Iran is backing these groups in order to make life costly for the United States. But the, the negative consequences of that uh, could be profound if this continues for, for, for much longer based on what people are saying about Egypt's economy. So, I, you know, and Egypt, by the way, uh, is also right next to Gaza. So this is this is problematic and this is deeply concerning. I think we should come back to this question of Iran and what does this mean for the risk, the broader risk of a conflict in 
in the Middle East. And I, I've kind of long been, I'm not like a, an Iranian apologist, but I, I, I haven't been as freaked out by Iran as a lot of people. I've covered Iran for a long time and I have never felt like Iran was undeterrable. You know, there's a kind of famous line from the former uh, Iranian president that we're going to wipe Israel off the map. Um, Iran has said a lot of things over the years about destroying Israel, about destroying the United States. And I never felt like this was really Iran's strategy or its posture, that it was really setting itself up to try to make sure it wasn't invaded, that the Iranian government stayed in power, but that it was perfectly willing to funnel money to all these groups and do all these bad things that the United States was not happy about, but that it wasn't likely to be the aggressor in a, in a Middle Eastern war. And I'm not sure, I'm not as sure about that anymore. And I, I kind of feel like Iran is shifting its stance slightly here, at least slightly, and is maybe taking a more aggressive turn, thinking that, look, there are some things here that we can do directly and we can play kind of a larger role because it seems like these coalitions that are arrayed against us are not as strong as we thought. That maybe there are places we can push and cause cracks in these coalitions. And that's where the Netanyahu statement kind of plays a little bit, right? That, that here's daylight between the U.S. and Israel where there wasn't any. And there's daylight between Saudi Arabia and the United States now, where Saudi Arabia is in direct communications with Iran, but the U.S. isn't, right? Saudi Arabia is not willing to push for uh, U.S. interests with regard to Yemen, for example. So Iran has kind of succeeded in finding these cracks in the U.S. coalition. And maybe these missiles are missile attacks are the first step in a more widely aggressive stance in the region. And, and that's worrisome for a lot of reasons, because Iran is a militarily strong country. I hate to bring it back to nuclear weapons. I always do. Iran is moments away from a nuclear. If, if Iran wants to get a nuclear weapon, it can have one, right? It's basically at that stage. It has enough material to, to, to put a weapon together when it wants one. And so it is a, a real force in the region. And, and to the extent that it feels emboldened to cause trouble more directly than it has in the past, that's worrisome for the United States and its allies. It's, worri it's worrisome for Israel and worrisome in the sense of what are the chances of a broader conflict. I don't think there's a whole lot of daylight uh, between our two positions here. I, too, have been um, of the view that Iran is deterrable and that Iran um, has legitimate security concerns. I mean, in, in 2002, George W. Bush said there's an axis of evil, Iran, Iran Iraq, and North Korea. And then the next year, the United States invaded Iraq and took out Saddam Hussein and installed its own government. I think Iran has a right to, to be fearful that the United States or another sort of Western actor will one day decide that they've had enough with, with Iran leadership and try to take them out. And so we see a lot of the same sort of discourse uh, traditionally coming out of Iran that we see with North Korea. You know, sort of like North Korea does it to a, a bigger extent, but, you know, wanting to, to, to show the United States like – don't mess with us. Like we we're serious and, and we're going to try to protect ourselves by doing, by taking actions that show that we have resolve and that we're going to deter you from, from even thinking about potentially uh, invading or anything like that. And, and in Iran's case, I think it's more about sort of like messing with our interests uh, less than like a ground invasion into Iran. But nevertheless, like they, they're worried about, I think us involvement in the middle East broadly uh, construed. And I still think that's the case today. I think what happened after October 7th is that it created this 
um, very difficult dynamic for Iran in many in many respects, right? They're they're looking at the Middle East, and I think as I was alluding to uh, earlier, and they're nervous, right? They're nervous about uh, U.S. engagement. They're they're nervous about where I think the the Gaza war goes. I think they're nervous about what's going to happen in Egypt. So, like, I I think there's a lot of ways to think about Iran from a sort of defensive posture. Um, and what they're what they're ultimately worried about is is their security, and they think that one of the tools that they have in their toolkit is to do these sort of limited, you know, engagements in order to show the, the rest of the powers out there don't mess with us. So I still broadly believe that, but I got to say, like you do, every day it gets harder and harder to hold that view, right? I think it's like you see enough of these, you know, sort of changes in in policy and changes in uh, stance and being a little bit more aggressive, to use the word that you used at the beginning of the pod. And it's harder to hold that view. But I think fundamentally, I'm still in the camp that says, you know, Iran's motivations are fundamentally, you know, defensive in nature. It, it looks around its neighborhood and it sees a lot of violence and that concerns it. It sees the United States and, and Israel, um, you know, not not totally split, obviously, but, you know, anything that the United States is doing in the Middle East will make, make Iran nervous. And so they're trying to do whatever they can uh, to suggest that they are a missile power and that they are able to uh, deter uh, potential aggression. But... Every day kind of chips away at that at that stance that I have. I want to push back slightly on one of the things you said, which is the comparison between North Korea and Iran, because I think this comparison gets made a lot because these are these are two countries that uh, the U.S. is not on good terms with that cause trouble for the U.S. whenever they have the chance to that have advanced missile and nuclear programs. And so we kind of lump them together sometimes. But in terms of the kind of greater international politics story, Iran is a very different case from North Korea in the sense that Iran is not an international pariah. Iran is not a uh, poverty-stricken nation. Iran is like a, a like a real member of the international community with real allies in the world, with real links to other countries, with real diplomacy, real trade. And so in some sense... It's less dangerous than North Korea because it has something to lose, right? It has these these links to the rest of the international community. But in another sense, it's it's more dangerous because it is a respected by many member of the international community, and it has the ability to marshal support to its side in a way that a country like North Korea struggles to do. And so it's it's a real player in international diplomacy. And we we sometimes don't see that in, in America because the press treatment of Iran is as one of these states in the axis of evil. But I, I think the more international view of Iran is, is like a it's like a real country, right? And and so I think there are reasons to separate those two analytically and think about them separately. Yeah, that's fair. I, I would I would say it makes them more dangerous. I think you hit on it. Like I think that it's the the fact that they're not a pariah and they have other countries that they can rely on and non state actors to kind of you know like the Houthis for example. Like North Korea doesn't have those types of of associations and uh, the organization is kind of not there. Um, totally agree. And I, but I think that that's just even more uh, a reason for them to be nervous is like there's there's also a lot for them to lose in this whole thing, right? And and I still think despite the fact that they have um, you know, all of this impressive uh, military uh, power and also these these alliances they can fall back on. I do think they're still fundamentally scared, you know, and they're looking out at, at the, the the neighborhood in the Middle East and they don't they don't like what they see. And they feel the need to, I think, show us uh, that they mean they mean business with, when it comes to their own security. So, yeah, I, I think that's a good point. Um, but you know what? Look, if you're in an axis of evil. It, regardless of what kind of state you're in and one of the, one third of that gets taken out, you know, you're going to be you're going to be nervous. 
All right. I think we should let that be the last word, Marcus. Um, we covered a lot of territory around Iran today. Well, not just that. I mean, we talked about True Detective and Fargo. I hope some of this discussion makes it into the pod. Yeah, not yet. I'm going to put that in the in the post, I think. You're going to put it in the post. Okay. So it won't be at the beginning, but it'll be at the end. Just as long as people have our views on synchronicity uh, in television, that'll be that'll make this whole pod worth it. Marcus, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure as always, Jeff. Folks, if you'd like to reach out, let us know what we should be talking about, what Professor Holmes was wrong about this week, you can reach us at cheaptalkpod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at speakpipe.com slash cheaptalk. You can also visit our store at cheaptalk.shop where you can purchase a balloon corner hoodie and uh, enjoy the coziness of the hoodie as you stay inside because it's too cold out right now. So uh, that's my recommended pick for this week. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. Have you been watching, uh, did you watch True Detective, the new season? Yes. Lindsay and I both liked it, the first episode. Yeah, I think it's really good. Yeah, I, I don't, I'm hoping it's not going to go in some sort of like supernatural direction. I don't love that, but I, I like, but I, so far so good. Like, I think the first episode was fantastic. But that's what makes it True Detective and not just like a random cop show, right? Is the, the supernatural element. Did you like the other True Detectives? I like season one. Yeah. And spoiler alert for the listener, uh, that one thought you thought it was supernatural, but it wasn't. Right. That was just well, like a creepy. It dude. might have been. It, it you you depends on how you look at it. Okay. I viewed it as a creepy dude like living in the woods. Yeah. I but mean okay. that you you the that's the beauty of True Detective season one is you can interpret it as this supernatural yeah. story, or you can interpret it as like a purely just like bad people doing bad things. Right. Right. Season two. Which one was season two? There was the one with um, Vince Vaughn. Vince Vaughn, is right. that Is that true? That, I didn't like that at all. I thought it was terrible. He was, a, he was poorly cast for that particular role. This should be the podcast. This is what we should be doing. Like, well, that's what I'm stuff. talking about. <laughs> we should, oh, is, that, is this start? We you think it was an accident that I... <laughs> so like, Are we going? Are we starting? into some content. And then season three was Maharshal Ali. That one I don't think I ever finished. I Which think I, I got like yeah, halfway I, through. I, I did not go for that. I mean... All right, so Colin Farrell and Vince Vaughn was season two. Colin Farrell was like a corrupt cop. Was that did he play that? Was that his role? <sighs> All right, I I, I didn't like. I liked season one, and then I was kind of out. I started season two, wasn't for me. This one, one episode in, very excited about True Detective season four, and I I just have to say like Jodie Foster is amazing, and it's so oh, she's great. great. It's so great to see Jodie Foster. Like, like back. doing, doing, yeah, like doing this because she is so good. And, you know, we haven't seen much Jodie Foster on screen and certainly not on TV. I think she was like a no. child star the last time she was on TV. And th this, and it's almost like Silence of the Lambs-esque in terms of her, like, like you know, she's a clearly very skilled police detective, but she's, she's like angry and not very nice. And like, I, I think it's just a, so far, like, just in the first episode, such a great performance. Really excited for how that show goes. Yeah, I, I was I was thinking after the episode, I'm like, I was trying to figure out if she's a likable character at this point. And, and my, I kind of concluded no, right? right? Like, yeah, exactly. based on what we've seen so far. And that's that's not the Jodie Foster kind of that I, I, I think about. I think about, like, you know, Jodie Foster. Like, what was the one? What's the, uh, the, 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 the UFO or the alien? Contact. Uh, contact. She's in that, right? Yeah, she is. She yeah, great performance. That's the Jodie. Yeah, exactly. 
exactly. That's the Jodie Foster that I, I kind of think of. So to have this one with an edge, uh, you know, I guess kind of like Silence of the Lambs a little bit, but like kind of like even more of an edge in some respect. Oh, definitely, yeah. yeah. Is well, like a nice, much angrier in her much presentation. Angrier. Yeah. Much, yeah, just kind of mean to people. Kind of mean, now, angry. I, yeah. I have a sense, I imagine, we're going to find out that she's got a lot of good reason to be like mean to people, but but she's mean, you know? She's got, uh, not very nice in episode one. Right. And the, How do you like, feel about, oh, I was gonna, excuse me. Well, I was going to mention the setting of this. I was going to go there as well. Yeah, the, the idea that you're near the Arctic Circle and it's one of these months of total darkness. And there, there have been so many movies and shows kind of set in that in that space. But I just love the vibe that comes from that, that it's just it's weird. The weird things are going on. It's completely dark at 2 PM. It really adds to the just feeling of being in this place. And I, I really enjoyed that. I like that too. And what I like about it is, is in particular is that they're, they're isolated, but they're not that isolated. So right. like sometimes these shows are like, Oh, there's 10 people stuck in like, you know, the North pole and they can't leave and they get like shipments every six months. Or this is like, there's a town, there's like townspeople, there are street lights, you know, like, I don't know where they film this or what it's based on, but like, it's a real place. And like people live there. I mean, it's not a real place. Like there, it's a make-believe place in the fi- thing, but it like exists as a real place that you could like imagine. And there are people living there, uh, which combines the sort of like isolated nature of it with being connected in some way to like society. Right. There are the elements of kind of this isolated research station there. So if you haven't watched the show yet, for anyone listening who hasn't watched it, there some of the action takes place at a, like a research center in, in the Arctic. But and, and there's a there was a show, I don't know, I want to say a couple of years ago called The Head. Did you watch that one? Mm-mm. Never even heard of it was on hulu and it's like it's like one of these spooky like research center in the arctic something happens to the people at the center and then like a team comes in to investigate so like the setup is very similar in some ways to this season of true detective but what this season has that that didn't is this alaskan town that's Mm -hmm. like next to the research center so you're not you don't have the same feeling of isolation there's like this whole kind of lived-in world around it that i think is kind of a nice break from the horror elements of the show. So I, I don't know, like, like you see, there's a bar, there's a, like the, that place where there people are buying alcohol, you know, there's like, there are like locations within this town that make it feel like a little more of a real place and less of a, like a horror movie set, which is these, the kind of isolated research station feels like. It feels to me a little bit like a Stanley Kubrick kind of movie like if um like the shining in in a way yeah. like it's like this isolated place creepy things are kind of happening the characters like you're not too sure about uh, especially kind of at the beginning clearly there's like some things that have happened in the past between these characters that have set them up in these relations that are like you know very complicated and so it but it's like that it's that isolated dark kind of feeling that's just like gives you kind of the creeps um and, and, yeah, I, I, I'm. I can't wait. The the annoying thing, Jeff. And let me get your let me let me get your take on this because my wife and I go back and forth on this all the time. She was very upset the other night that we couldn't just plow through like the, <laughs> the next five episodes or whatever it is, like in a big binge, and just like see how this th- whole thing plays out. But I, you know, I, I think patience is a virtue, and I do think there's a time and a place for binging. There's no question. But I do think there's something nice, and we might have talked about this on the pod uh, before, something about having to wait, 
but then also crucially something about kind of experiencing the show with everybody else. Yeah, like exactly. the one thing that the internet has taken from us uh, in some respects is that if I turn on Hulu and start you know binging some show, that's great as an individual experience, but I don't get to kind of share. It's like Game of Thrones, right? I didn't watch Game of Thrones when it came out, and I feel like that was – um, when I did eventually watch it, I was missing out on something, and that something was the conversation that you and I are having right now about the the, the episode and like what's going to happen next. I I didn't get any of that, and I'm not going to go listen to old podcasts like you know people talking about it because it's 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 not current anymore. So I like the idea that I have to wait for this to to come out, and that when I sit down and watch it, even if I'm watching it the next day or the day after or whatever, it doesn't really matter that I'm sitting down in that same moment. Although that is kind of fun too, but just that I'm more or less watching it with the rest of the country or the world there's something kind of comforting about that and i like that yeah that that's nice to be part of that conversation and we sometimes call it talk about like the monoculture the these like big events that that bring everybody together and the game of thrones maybe was like that or sporting like the super bowl is like that but there aren't very many anymore because everyone's if, if you watch a show on netflix everyone's at a different place nobody's mm-hmm. watching it together and, you know, if we had a water cooler, Marcus, I would meet you at the water cooler to, to discuss this. Like, I, if we're Game of Thrones, I would, like, barge into um, our colleague Dan Maliniak's office uh, every Monday. And, and go talk would, to him and about we would the, have the Red re- Wedding. Re- recap of, right. like, can you believe what just happened? Or why was that fight scene so dim I could barely make anything out? I mean, that was, uh, that was like, our, our every, every week we would have that conversation. That's kind of nice to experience these things together with, with others. So I, I, I hear what you're saying. And I will go one step further. I think it's not even it's not even about the conversation. One of the things we have a Peloton, you know, the the bike where you sure. like do cycling classes. Most of their content is is recorded, right? It's like their classes that have been recorded. You can watch them anytime. It's like on demand. But what Peloton has done brilliantly is that even if I go into a class that was recorded two weeks ago, it shows you this this sort of like leaderboard on the right-hand side of people who are in the class right now with you at the same time. So even though it happened in the past, there are people on this planet who are doing the same exact thing that I am doing right now and watching this class. And it even shows you like where they are in the class relative to where to where you are. And there's just something comforting and nice about, like, realizing that there's another human being, or in some cases, like, several other human beings, doing the exact same thing, having the exact same experience that I am right now. And I feel like the internet has done a lot of, like, sort of on-demand stuff, uh, which is great, but you lose that sort of, like, synchronicity and the realization that, like, I'm doing this with other people right now at the same time. And I I take comfort in that. Yeah. The other show that I'm watching, which is going to lack the same kind of monoculture as uh, True Detective is Monsieur Spade. Never even heard of that. On AMC. And uh, this is a, it's a show about, the, it's the, the continuing adventures of the character Sam Spade, who is the lead character, uh, Dashiell Hammett character from, uh, from Maltese Falcon, which, oh. you know, s- yeah. some listeners may have heard of. It's a, yeah. a deeper cut for our, our key demographic <laughs> here, but um, some listeners may have heard of. Classic um, <laughs> literary character, kind of noirish uh, private detective type. And it this show, which is on AMC starring Clive Owen, so, you know, a good cast, good strong cast, follows what happens to this character after the events of the Maltese Falcon. And he oh. is holed up in the south of France in kind of a new life. And then uh, bad things start to happen around him. And we're one episode into that as well. And it is really, really good. It's a completely different vibe from True Detective. It's got kind of this 
noir banter between the private eye and the police captain. It's got kind of interesting characters on the margins. It's got this kind of creepy sense of like something bad's about to happen, but you don't know what. And this tough guy, very well acted character um, from Clive Owen of, of Sam Spade kind of continuing this the tough guy private eye stereotype, but it's really, it's very well done. And um, it'll, I'll give it my, my recommend. If you can find a way to watch AMC, um, then uh, it's a good one. So I haven't seen this in a while, but this is, so he plays the Humphrey Bogart character. Yeah. Like, okay. All right. Interesting. I'll have to check that out. I should go back. Do I have to watch Maltese Falcon first to like refresh my memory? I mean, I, I don't think I've ever, I mean, if I'd seen it, it was years and years ago. So I, right. I just went right into this show and just jumped right I'm in. Good. Like I, I, I apparently some of the people referenced right at the beginning of the show would be familiar if you know the story or the book um, that right. that uh, you know the Maltese Falcon story, but I, it, it hasn't affected my enjoyment of the of the show, which is like a very different pace. It's a lot kind of slower to develop, but uh, is really really well done. So I'm going to give that one a recommend as well. On la- last one, the, on the television recommendations, I do have to recommend the latest season of Fargo. I, I, I've gone in and out on Fargo. Yeah. Uh, have, you been, have you been watching? I started to watch the first episode of this season and then um, didn't get I, – I, I, I want to come back to it, though. It seems, it seems good. Yeah. It's, it's, it's all Fargo's are, incredibly violent, uh, you know, horrific. And some there's a, there's a little bit of sort of like supernatural stuff going on, not a lot. But it's, it's really well acted. Um, and the story is, is really good and sort of like, I don't want to say too much about it, but it's, it's, I would recommend it. I, I would say, uh, Fargo for this season after a couple of rough yeah, seasons, in my I, opinion, I'd heard kind of the last couple of them were not, were not they really missed the, standard. missed the mark, but they're back to sort of like the real tricks, uh, with this one. Um, and similarly kind of takes place not in Alaska, but like in a very cold, as we know, uh, Minnesota. So it, uh, yeah, I would, I would recommend, uh, people, people check it out. It's, I can't, the, I'm blanking on the woman's name, the actress, but she's, she was in, um, Ted Lasso. She's in that. And she's in the, the other show that I really liked, uh, about the making of the Godfather. Again, I'm blanking on the name of what that is, but she's, uh, Juno Temple. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Does an excellent job. Uh, highly recommend a plus plus. I hope she gets, what, what do they give out for those Emmys? Those, those would be Emmys. Yes. Did they do that already? We did well. We just had Emmys, but th- this would be for the previous year, so oh, so right, Fargo right, right. wouldn't have been eligible. And these uh, Emmys were actually like the Emmys that were postponed from September. That the ones that just happened last week were originally oh. scheduled for September, but there was a strike, and so they didn't happen. Oh, right, the strike. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So okay, the, right. these are actually like the 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 Bear, one of uh, my favorite shows the last year. Yours too. The Bear won for season one at these Emmys. And he won for season two at the Golden Globes that was the week before. So things are all That's messed up in, in TV land right now, but they'll yeah. get their act together. Anyway, I hope Juno Temple wins an Emmy. Whenever, whenever the next you know, qualification period is, I hope she wins. 